1: Here's today's number $190 million. That's how much money Jordan Peele's movie Get Out has made at the box office since its release in February. It's the highest grossing film by a black director in American history and the highest grossing movie ever by a first time writer director based on an original story. The movie's budget? $4 million. That's a job well done. This is the Stream Police Podcast. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Looking for a Netflix recommendation that's worth two hours of your time? Or a forgotten album that's worth picking up on iTunes? OverdueReview.com is your destination for unbiased, unpretentious, thoughtful opinions on movies, TV, and music from every era. OverdueReview.com. Better late. Hey guys, welcome again to the Stream Police podcast brought to you by your friends at review.com I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor. In just a bit, we'll be hearing from our music editor, Andy Sedlak, as always on this show. People ask about, like, when I, when I first talk about this show, somebody asks about it, I'll tell them that it's really, it's like a monologue show. Like, you, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, it's usually a couple people sitting around microphones together, it, a lot of interview shows, two people going back and forth, whatever. That's not really how we do it on this show. We do monologues, really. Um, and that's that's by design. That's kind of how we, we like to run this show. So um, it, it's more like you're hearing just the stream of conscien- consciousness thoughts from two different guys on unrelated topics. So um, – and we get together sometimes if we have a chance, but it, it's kind of fun, you know, the, just the, uh, I think the way, I think it's a little different. So uh, glad to have you into my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I record my segment. Andy records his in his beautiful basement in Dayton, Ohio. And I uh, last time mentioned that I was going to be moving out of the closet where I had recorded all my previous episodes, all 42 episodes in this one closet, my house in Cincinnati. My wife and I moved and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find in another closet. Well, I did I found one I could sit inside it's actually a little roomier than the other closet, so I'll be figuring out kind of like the sound and the the acoustics as I go along, so I apologize if I don't sound quite as good as usual in here. we do take pride in how good the show sounds uh even though we, we both record in uh pretty makeshift <laughs> little studios um, but I think uh, this this little closet will work pretty well it's goddamn it's hot in here though uh this is on a second floor the uh old closet was on a first floor, so it's like already sweltering in here, so i'm I'm looking forward to this. Maybe I'll lose a little weight while I'm in here talking to you guys as well. All right. Let's, uh, let's get right on to it. Just because I changed closets, that doesn't mean I'm changing everything. i got to light up my stogie. Let me uh, kick back and go ahead and get that going for some ambience in here. All right. As good as ever. Got to get that smell built in early. We got a lot coming up on the show today. Andy's going to be talking a little bit about Kendrick Lamar and Harry Styles. How about that pairing? And uh, I'll be talking a little bit later on about Hulu's ambitious uh, new show, probably the most ambitious show that Hulu has tried so far, I would say, and and I would guarantee it's probably the most going to be the most popular, truly original show that Hulu has tried in its uh, years. Uh, since it was founded So uh, we'll be talking about that coming up in just a little bit But first off, let's start the show as we always do With the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week And this week's edition is a childhood favorite of mine It's the Ren and Stimpy show And the song is The Dog Pound Hop By Der Screamin' Later Hosen. not the typical kind of like jumpy, you know, bouncy theme song you hear on a kid's TV show, right? The Ren and Stimpy show was was unlike any other children's TV show that had ever come before it. And it was one of those that I've loved since the first time I ever saw it when I was a kid. I remember first watching Ren and Stimpy and something even then, I don't know how old I was. I was probably, God, I don't know, six, seven years old, something like that when I first really watched it. Maybe younger than that. Uh, because it was on when I was younger than that, but I, I truly remember watching it like just when I was like elementary school age and just loving this show from the first time I ever saw it because something about it just spoke to me. I didn't know, I didn't know how to explain it, I didn't know why it spoke to me, but it was fast paced. It was very strange. It had animation unlike anything I'd ever seen, including some animation that really was like kind of disturbing to look at. And it had this fantastic music all throughout it. Original songs, uh, classical music that they kind of warped and turned on its head. Um, it's kind of some jazz music. It was, it was really cool. And, and the great music on the show includes this theme song. <laughs> So clearly it's this bluesy instrumental. And like I said, it's called the Dog Pound Hop. And it was written and performed by a trio of guys who worked at Spumco, which was the animation company that produced Ren and Stimpy. So these guys had a band, um, his bass, guitar, and drums. They had a little band together. They got together and jammed. And they were just noodling around, and they came up with what would be this song. Now, there is a legend surrounding the Ren and Stimpy theme song as well. Legend has it that Kurt Cobain of Nirvana actually wrote a theme song for the show in 1990. He was kind of struggling. Nirvana wasn't a huge mainstream band yet, and he wrote a theme song, submitted a theme song for this new show, the Ren and Stimpy show. More than a year before Smells Like Teen Spirit changed popular rock, that's supposedly what he did. Unfortunately, no recordings of Kurt Cobain's theme song, for The Ren and Stimpy show are publicly available, which leads me to believe that this may not be true, but regardless, it is a great story. And the idea that, like, some Nickelodeon or uh, you know, Spumco execs kind of like told would tell a guy who would end up being like one of the all time rock and roll icons that it, his song was not good enough to be a theme song for their little cartoon show, is there's something hilarious about that as well. So I don't know, like I said, if it's a true story, but if it is, it's one of the best I've heard. The Ren and Stimpy show ended up running for five seasons on Nickelodeon before it ended in 1995. They brought it back on Spike TV in the 2000s. I, I watched those as well because I had loved Ren and Stimpy so much, and it was really bad. It was Ren and Stimpy's adult party cartoon. They canceled it quickly um, and, and mercifully, thank you, uh, for doing that. But uh, the show, the Ren and Stimpy show on Nickelodeon caused some trouble for the network standards and practices department, uh, which you can read about online easily. There were a few episodes that things had to be censored out of and, you know, jokes had to be cut, which later would they would re-air on MTV. But on Nickelodeon, they couldn't air them. But no doubt this show blazed a trail for cartoons that would be aimed at Gen Xers and adults. Shows like Beavis and Butthead, the stuff that you saw in the early days of Adult Swim, even SpongeBob SquarePants, I always felt like had a lot to, owed a lot to Ren and Stimpy. And if you watch SpongeBob and if you watch, uh, you know, Ren and Stimpy, I think you'll see a lot of similarities there, especially in some of those, like I said, little like disturbing animation styles when they go into like the extreme close ups of some really gross thing. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's it's great stuff. And uh, again, kind of like, like a truly visionary, and uh, original offbeat show that was uh, made for kids, really. So that's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, the Ren and Stimpy show's Dog Pound Hop. And once again, those guys who wrote and performed that song, they went under the name Der Screamin' Lederhosen, which definitely sounds like Uh, a joke that would have been on the Ren and Stimpy show. So last time on the show, I asked you guys a couple of questions, including one about separating art from the artist. I talked about how, you know, it's difficult, especially in the the post-Bill Cosby sexual assault allegations uh, age, all the things that we know now that we did not know before. So can you separate art from the artist? I got uh, a good response from uh, one of our listeners. Mandy actually told me that she struggles with this uh, question with one of her favorite artists, mariah Carey she said she 's been a Mariah Carey fan since. Uh, the days she first came out back when she was a teenager and she had that, you know, crazy, like glass shattering voice that nobody had ever heard before. And she really liked her, loved her music, uh, loved her uh her, you know, persona out in the media. But then in the last few years, she said it's been a little bit hard and kind of embarrassing uh to publicly root for Mariah Carey because I mean she's definitely had some like well publicized issues. She had like a breakdown on live TV. She's um and, and Mandy said that specifically she struggles with the uh the image that mariah carey projects now whereas it was she felt like it was kind of like a classy uh stage singer back then now she feels like maybe she uh i think her exact words were that she shows her boobs off too much now and <laughs> wears very little uh and just has like kind of a weird persona in the media and uh yeah i mean that's tough too you know when you have somebody who's kind of changed their image over time and maybe you don't really agree with the way that they've gone but you still like their music she says she still listens to her music but it's hard to kind of uh uh, publicly acknowledge being a fan of her at this point so uh there you go can you separate the art from the artist i think it's a it's a tough question for those of us who love uh media who who love art and it's something that all of us are going to have to face at some point none of us can can follow people who will never have like a spotty thing in their background it comes into play in sports a lot too we just saw the NFL draft where players are taken despite uh being accused and in some cases it being proven that they had, you know, sexually assaulted people or uh, physically assaulted people and you have to you're going to buy a jersey for this guy, your team's going to pay millions of dollars for this guy, reward him for this really shitty behavior. Um it just doesn't seem right and it's a it's a hard thing to juggle, I think. So before I get into really talking about TV in this episode, I um I I had heard a few hot entertainment takes. That I, wanted to, uh, that I wanted to bring to you right at the start of the show. My friend and coworker, Alex, who I believe also listens to the show, thank you, Alex, has said before, and I think it's a great quote, I heard him say it one time, he said that we live in a take-driven world, um, and we work in media, so clearly we feel that probably more than the average, uh, just, you know, person going about their day job. But yeah, we do. We live in a take driven world. I feel like uh, social media, all it is, is basically for people to get their takes out there. You got to give a short, quick take on something. It's knee jerk reaction kind of stuff. And that's what makes a hot take a hot take. So I heard two of them that I wanted to share with you guys. And I I agree somewhat. I found myself kind of, you know how it is when you hear like a, when you hear a really hot take, either you really disagree with it or you start thinking about it and you're like, you know what? I think I agree with this son of a bitch. So, first off, Tim Heidecker of Tim and Eric fame, one of my uh, favorite sketch comedy shows of all time. Still one of those shows I love to go back to. Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job. Uh, Tim Heidecker, apparently, I guess he hosts a podcast. I didn't know that, but I guess he hosts a podcast. And on the show, or maybe he was on somebody else's, I'm not really sure how it went down, but I've got the, the clip for you and I'll play it for you. Tim Heidecker said not too long ago, that he feels like Bill Murray is kind of like overrated, and that he doesn't understand why people idolize uh, Bill Murray. The Guys like considered a saint for people, and I don't really get it because, listen, I
0: like—I got no problem with Bill Murray. I, young, you know, young Bill Murray is my part of my childhood. It's how I, it's in my DNA. Yeah. He hasn't really made a good movie in a long time. I think it's probably because he doesn't care if the I movies think, are I good think or that's not.
1: that's where he's at now. He said that, you know, Murray hasn't really done many notable movies or characters since the 1980s. And, you know, he just said that it's weird that people kind of revere this guy and idolize this guy so much. And now on, you know, in Tim's defense, this was a lukewarm take because he says himself in the clip that he really doesn't have strong feelings about it either way. What I
0: don't like is sort of this cult of Bill Murray and this this uh, this like the fandom of Bill Murray seems that it's rooted in in a in a very very. very shallow earth, you know the guys that wear like the Bill Murray shirt uh, with space yeah. on it, and you, oh, Bill Murray showed up at this bar in Austin and did shots with us, and it's like, well, I, okay, that's yeah. that's cool for him that he yep. can kind of stroll through life and walk in and and be the center of attention and and kind of probably get whatever he wants.
1: But yeah. uh, I don't know if there's lots to rally behind there. I read that, and I'm like, man, Bill Murray really is. I mean, he's, he's, he's like a saint to people, um, to, to certain types of people. I mean, you see his face on bumper stickers, T-shirts, everywhere. Uh, you, you read about him in the news every so often. And I, st- I was thinking about this, and I heard a, an interview that Bill Murray did with Howard Stern a couple years ago. Long interview. It was like an hour-long interview he did with Howard Stern. And while I was listening to the interview— Stern was just, like, slurping all over Bill Murray, just like most people probably would. I was thinking, like, you know what? The more I think about it, Bill Murray kind of doesn't sound like a likable guy. He kind of sounds like an asshole, really. So I found myself kind of agreeing with Tim Heidecker on a few points here. I think Bill Murray has done some great work. Film work since the late 1990s, movies like Rushmore, Lost in Translation, St. Vincent from a few years ago. Those were some of the best movies in his entire career. I mean, Rushmore is especially, I mean, that's one of the best comedies of recent memory, and he had a big part in it. But those performances are mostly variations on a single theme, right? He, he's pretty much turned into the guy who plays misanthropic old guys. Like, that's his that's his niche now. He, like, only plays the misanthropic old guy, I feel like. And I have always thought it was weird also that Bill Murray is celebrated for not using a cell phone or using email. Like, he famously says that he's never had a cell phone. He's never had email. He doesn't have a computer. So when people... When, you know, film producers, writers want to get in touch with him to get him involved in a project, it's like a huge, it's like a gauntlet you have to go through. It's like very difficult to get in touch with him, apparently, and get him in a project. So, like I said, it kind of makes him sound like an asshole. I don't know why people think that's like a cool thing, you know? I mean, can you imagine that in some other walk of life, like some coworker you have? Who Like your boss or something. Your boss just decides they don't like email. They don't like phones anymore. And you're going to have to like track them down in person somehow, write them a letter if you want to get in touch with them. I mean, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's really cool. You would say that person's an asshole. So, I mean, it's like, is he like the ultimate hipster, I guess? To me, like I said, it's just it's weird also that he always makes the news for like intervening in people's social gatherings rather than trying to blend in. So you will always hear a story about, oh, he was at a wet he-, he walked into somebody's wedding and he started, you know, tend bar or he photobombed, you know, a picture with somebody like weird shit that Bill Murray will do that people think is really cool. But once again, it kind of just sounds like attention seeking more than just blending in which I think is, is a thing that most people would like more, somebody who just kind of blends in, even if they are famous. But with all that said, I'm a fan of Bill Murray's work. I, just, I feel like the Bill Murray people remember from the 80s and 90s, as much credit needs to go to Harold Ramis as it does to Bill Murray because you think about movies like, what are the movies you think of when you think of Bill Murray? You think of Meatballs. You think of Caddyshack. You think of Ghostbusters. And you think of Groundhog Day. What is the common thread in every one of those movies? Every one of them was written and in some cases directed by Harold Ramis. So like I said, I, I feel like and, and Harold Ramis is since dead. He was one of the true comic geniuses, one of those guys who uh talk about a guy who didn't seek attention. He was a guy you would totally miss. He was I mean, he's in Ghostbusters, but uh no one ever talks about him. I mean but he's the guy who came up with the whole thing. And uh it, it's just one of those things where I feel like Murray gets a lot of the credit, but he was working with some really brilliant guys. And now that those guys are kind of gone, he's really doing more dramatic work. He's not doing so much funny stuff. And, and then Wes Anderson's kind of become the guy that has taken you know Bill Murray on since then. So once again, it was a hot take, I thought, Tim Heidecker talking about Bill Murray not being idolized. But I thought I'd share it with you because it did kind of make me think about it a little bit. Uh, and, and, you know, why do we like why do people worship Bill Murray? He kind of just acts like an asshole most of the time. It sounds like in real life. Number two, the second hot entertainment take that I heard that I wanted to share with you, because I found myself starting to agree with it after my initial shock of hearing it, was my wife, Beth, who said the other day we were watching a trailer for the movie The Circle, and this one is not so much a hot take as— I feel like it's it's more like a legitimate opinion because it's disparaging one of Hollywood's most beloved personalities. So that makes me call it a hot take. But it's really like a legitimate opinion because it sounds like she's thought about it a lot. It's not knee jerk. But we're watching a trailer for that movie The Circle that's got Tom Hanks in it, Emma Watson. And Beth says to me, you know, I love Emma Watson as a person, but I just don't think she's a good actor. That's what she said, and I was like, what? I mean, it's and it was one of those things where why did I react so strongly to that? And I started to think about it. I soaked it in a little bit, and I realized I'd honestly never given much thought to Emma Watson's acting skills because she's like, like kind of one of these larger-than-life people who's like beyond acting, right? I consider myself someone who watches movies closely And I formed solid opinions about actors, directors, and their skill sets. But I'd always kind of taken it as a given that Emma Watson was a good actor. I'd given her a pass because of how respected she is as a feminist and as, like, this anti-celebrity. She's one of those celebrities who's very famous, young, good-looking, but doesn't, like, go out a lot socially, doesn't do a whole lot of pub. I mean, she's, she's interesting in that way, and I think that's really cool, and I think she's a good role model. But is she a very good actor? I don't know. I'd kind of always given her a pass. So I started thinking about. it. I'm like, is she a sucky actor? Honestly, I've seen. So I've seen all the Harry Potter movies. Clearly, that's a lot of uh, movies in her body of work. Wasn't really blown away by her in that, and I've never really blown away by, been blown away by her in any of the movies that I've seen her in. I thought she was, you know, cute and believable as Hermione, but she didn't move me too much in the later films when she had to get emotional a lot. I saw her in the movie The Bling Ring, the Sofia Coppola movie, and she didn't do a whole lot in that. Plus, the movie sucked overall. I have absolutely no memory of her in the movie, Noah. I know she was in it, but I do not remember her you know blowing me away or anything in that. I didn't see perks of being a wallflower. I didn't see ballet shoes, so maybe I'm not judging some of her best work but i just I've never been blown away by her, and I haven't seen Beauty and the Beast yet, so maybe I just haven't seen enough of her work, or maybe she's really not a great actor. I don't know. So I thought that was a hot take. Emma Watson's not a good actor. Have you thought that? I mean, because I feel like, yeah, she commands a lot of money. She commands a lot of attention. And she's a great role model. We're not going to I'm not going to argue that I'm not going to argue that uh, she's not, you know, doesn't stand up for good values and things that, you know, people should fight for and believe in. But is she a great actor? I don't know. I haven't seen any evidence that tells me she is. So I credit Beth with kind of putting that one in my head. But. I've had, like, the opposite hot take of Emma Watson's not a good actor. I've For years, I've been saying, ever since I saw her in the movie uh, The Runaways, playing Joan Jett, I have said that I thought Kristen Stewart was a good actor. And people for years have said, no, she's a horrible actor, she's terrible. And I never saw it. I'm like, Adventureland, she was she was good in that. But Runaways, I thought she was very good in that movie. And now it seems like in the last few years... People have come around to it, especially this year. People have been talking about, wow, well, you know what, Kristen Stewart's actually a good actor. And I'm like, no shit, I've been saying that for years. Just forget about the Twilight movies. I mean, those were just horribly written, you know, trite garbage, and she was like a teenager. But I think she is a legitimate—she can be a good actor. So, I don't know. That's, uh, that's my opposite of a hot take on saying Emma Watson's not a good actor. Kristen Stewart is a good actor. All right, so anyways, this is some hot entertainment takes for you that I wanted to pass along to you. Should Bill Murray be idolized, and is Emma Watson a good actor? I don't know. Point me some evidence uh, that says uh, why you think, maybe why you disagree with both of those hottest of takes. I want to talk about uh, and review a show that I just finished its first season of, um, and that is Legion on FX. So Legion is kind of the latest superhero television show and probably the most experimental and uh I don't know the weirdest superhero television show that I have seen on TV yet. And that's I'm talking about of a mainstream superhero like comic book company, Marvel, produces Legion. Stan Lee is one of the producers of the show. This is based uh, on a character, an X-Men character, uh by the name of Legion, and he's supposedly the you know, son of Professor X, I guess. And he's a, this extremely powerful mutant, but, you know, it's his whole life has been presented as, he's like a schizophrenic, and he didn't realize that he actually had powers. It's an interesting story. This whole first season is basically just an origin story of Legion, and it's a character that I didn't know anything about. I'd never heard of Legion. I didn't ever read Marvel comics. I never read X-Men. Um, my familiarity with X-Men was always through the movies, Um, so I, I didn't know a lot about Legion. So I watched the show. I was interested in it mostly because the show was created by Noah Hawley, who's one of the most gifted television writer directors that is working in the business today. He's the guy who created the, the Fargo TV series and, and wrote the, uh, you know, bulk of the first, uh, two seasons and is writing the third season as well. Um, so I was like, okay, Noah Hawley's doing it. I'll watch anything that that guy does. You know it's going to at least be original if he does it. So he did Legion, and it feels like a Noah Hawley show, but it also it does feel different from Fargo as well, but it feels just about different from every other superhero thing I've ever seen. Season one right now, it's eight episodes. It's a quick watch. It's streaming on FX now, also, also on Hulu, and on demand. Uh, if you have a cable or satellite subscription, you can find it there as well. The Cast of Legion is very strong, but I felt like they were a bit underused, honestly. Uh the typical problem with X-Men adaptations, I've written about it before when I reviewed the movie X-Men at the website overduereview.com. The typical problem my typical problem with the X-Men movies is that there's just too many characters. And the characters like they feel like uh Quantity is better than quality, I feel like. So, usual superhero movies, you get one superhero, one supervillain, maybe a sidekick who has powers as well. That's about it. So, you have a lot of time to kind of get into them. With the X Men, though, there's a ton of characters. I mean, you're talking about dozens of superheroes in the X Men universe. I don't. There might be hundreds, honestly, at this point. So there's too many characters that are honestly just boiled down to a power rather than being a real person who happens to have power. So you'll end up with, oh, that's Cyclops. He's the guy who can, like, shoot lasers out of his eye. Oh, there's Wolverine. Now, Wolverine has been fleshed out as a real character throughout, like, a million movies that they've done about him. Uh, But, yeah, he's the guy who has the blades in his arms. Oh, there's Storm. She can control the weather. I mean, when that's all you can say about these characters, then they're not really that interesting of characters. Um, I mean, you don't talk about Bruce Wayne as, oh, that's the guy who wears a black suit and beats people up. I mean, that's not the defining characteristic of Batman. He's much deeper than that. So, you know, and I feel like that's the same for Superman. The X-Men need to do a better job of making their characters fully fleshed out in the movies and in TV. And Legion does that with the character of Legion, but all the other supporting characters are so two-dimensional. They only exist to support Legion. That's the only reason they're here on the show, and it's very transparent um, you know, in that way. This is the kind of show, though, that I feel like is destined to be a cult classic and a favorite of people who like to stay up late, get high, and watch TV. Because this is a very trippy show, it's very experimental, um, and it just doesn't try to fit into the box of you know, like a normal television adventure show, and especially not a normal superhero uh, show. But Dan Stevens, who stars in the show as Legion, he's the guy who played Beast in the Beauty and the Beast remake with Emma Watson. He, Dan Stevens is fantastic in this part. He really does. Uh, he really does a great job, and um, he he's the main reason you know to watch this show. He has to channel a lot of different emotions here. He's got to use different accents. He's got to, you know, do a little bit of action stuff. But it's a it's a great performance from this guy. He makes you feel for him. Other times, he kind of makes himself seem like a villain. Um, and he's got to juggle like all these multiple personalities. And I think he does a really good job of it. Most people are going to walk away from Legion though, thinking about Aubrey Plaza, who played uh, April Ludgate in Parks and Rec. Aubrey Plaza is. I'm not going to, like, spoil anything about her character on the show, but she plays a heavy part in this show. She's a big-time character in the show. And after you watch maybe the first episode, you might think, well, how could she be a big-time character? But she is. She's throughout the entire season. She does a lot. And they give her a lot to do. But the thing is, she overacts a lot in this show. Like, she just chews up the scenery in every scene she's in. But she really does get a show off how exciting she can be as well. You remember April Ludgate from Parks and Rec was, like, very – Sardonic and she was kind of laconic, and she didn't, she just didn't say a whole lot. And when she did, it was always sarcastic. It was with no emotion, no inflection. That was the whole point of her. She was monotonous. Um, but in this show, she's like the total opposite of April Ludgate. She's all over the place. She's manic. She does a lot of different things. She even gets like a song and dance number. Um, it's a, it's a good, good character for her, I think, to show off how versatile she is. And you'll be thinking about her a lot after this show's over because she just dominates. But it's, it's overacting for sure. The costumes, the sets, and the music of Legion are definitely high points of the show. You can tell a lot of care went into picking out the soundtrack and in making the show look retro futuristic i re- I loved the costumes and the sets in this show. They look very good. they look real. this looks like a real world, um, and I bought into it in that way, uh, especially for a first season. I thought they did a nice job kind of pulling out all the stops. I really also enjoyed the practical effects uh, in this show, which I saw drew a, a little heat from critics online. Some people said they were cheesy. But I thought the practical effects were really cool. Like this evil, like fat ass demon guy with yellow eyes that keeps popping up. It's a really creepy look. And it's a real physic like it's not a CGI thing. It, it was a built costume. And also this little kid who's the world's most angry, the world's angriest boy in the world. Uh, he's a character from some children's book that uh, Legion has read when he's a kid. And messes him up psychologically. This kid pops up in a real manifestation, and he's a real practical effect. And I think he looks really creepy and really cool. And I like that the show does this kind of stuff. It's kind of, you know, paying homage to like 1980s uh, horror movies, really. So uh, that's those are the good things about Legion. The look of it's great. Dan Stevens is great. Aubrey Plaza is fun to watch. The music's fantastic. The sets awesome. The big negative about this show, like I said, sporting characters are all cardboard, and the female characters especially are mired in being tied to their love interests as their sole motivations. They really do not have motivations of their own. They are tied to love interests one hundred percent. Gene Smart plays like this older character who is a mentor of sorts to these all these mutant uh misfits that get together. But her like storyline is that she's got her husband frozen, preserved in a room in the the place, and she just can't wait till the day she can bring him out of, you know, his frozen stasis and be with him again. She has his voice on recordings all throughout the house. She's obsessed with this memory of her husband. Can't let it go. And it's the, you know, the the sole driving force, I feel like, of what she does. Her other big motivation is that she's a mother figure type character to Legion, which is problematic and is its own uh, reason. Uh, and, and also the uh, love interest character of Legion. Again, I mean, she basically her whole life, she just exists to be there for legion, like she does not have her own storyline really she's got an you know kind of an interesting power she's like rogue, she takes people's powers if she touches them, but it's it's you know we've seen it before, so it's not that novel uh, but it's not just the female characters, really, everything in Legion revolves around the character of Legion. The male and female characters really base their entire lives around him. So it's a little thin in that regard. I hope in the second season we get to know these supporting characters more. It's an ensemble show. It's got a big cast, but they're just kind of underused, and they're good actors. So I was disappointed to see that. But uh, Legion is worth watch if you 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 dig the X-Men, if you like superhero stuff. But it's very different. I mean, don't go into this thinking you're going to see, like, a Disney Avengers or even those Marvel shows that are on – Uh, Netflix these are not this show is not like those at all this is a this is its own thing completely you don't have to be afraid
2: I'm not you don't have to
3: be afraid stop saying
2: that why don't you just leave us alone
3: Yeah. to do what
2: I don't know fall
3: in love have babies but see now that's a problem because your babies and my babies who wins that sandbox squabble you don't have to be i know i don't have to be afraid but i am because look at you all of you you're gods and someday you're gonna wake up and realize you don't need to listen to us anymore
1: you can check legion out right now like i said season one on fx now on hulu and on demand as well All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy. We'll see what he's got going on in his basement in Dayton. Take it away, Mr. Sedlak.
0: Ready
2: to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
3: Ah, it is good to be with you. For real, it really is. Uh, just uh, love doing this. Haven't gotten tired of it yet. (laughs) Uh, You know what's hard to wrap your arms around? Maturity. I mean, we can easily uh, wrap our arms around our own maturity. I'm talking about the maturity of others, if you're a proposition. Everyone changes, don't they? For instance, I no longer watch cartoons on a Saturday morning. And, in you know, I, I no longer think it's cool to peel out at red lights. You know why? It's because I'm a grown-ass man. I know things now that I didn't know before, right? I've experienced things that have influenced the way I look at the world around me. I don't update my Facebook three times a day like I did in college because I've got better things to do now. But when it comes down to it, musicians, unlike the rest of us, have to fight for their right to mature. Because they're maturing in an artistic sense, if I can spit that out. They're maturing in an artistic sense sense and you have to fight to do that right or wrong it's just the way it is if you want us to follow you down a new road you better have earned your stripes first listeners have to trust you you guys know Harry Styles right of course you do well that kid has earned his stripes Styles has a new record coming out in early May. He went through a lot of different titles, didn't know what to call it at first. The original choice was to just call it Pink. Then he wanted to call it Sign of the Times, but it'll uh, end up uh, being self-titled, just going to call it Harry Styles. Now, if you're listening to this uh, after its release date of May 12th, keep in mind that at the time of... This recording, I have not heard the whole album. I've heard two songs. One is "Sign of the Times." Aside from being the one of the original titles of the record, it is the first single. The other song I've heard is called uh, "Ever Since New York." Yeah, those are the two songs he performed on Saturday Night Live. I like both the songs. Like, uh, I, I like them a lot. I I was jazzed when I heard them. Energized, immediately wanted to hear them again. And not long after, I was sharing a pint with a buddy. And I told him that I was, hey, I was into this. And he laughed. He laughed. In my face. He didn't think Harry Styles had earned his stripes. Old labels die hard, don't they? Old labels die hard. We like to think that we have certain artists pegged. But the best artists are impossible to peg. And so far, Styles has been very tough to peg. No, he didn't do much writing while he was in One Direction. It's because they were always freaking cranking out albums all the time. It was like assembly line stuff. And there was a team, a separate team that handled that. When I say that there were a few songs he helped write, like this one. He helped with this one. That was a hit. He also pitched in on this.
2: v remember the day we were giving up when you told me I didn't give you enough And all of your friends were saying, I'll be leaving you. She's lying in bed with mighty t- shit on. Just thinking now I went up by wrong. This isn't the stain of a red wine. I'm bleeding love. Please believe me, don't you see
3: the- It's called Olivia. Like perfect, it's uh from their last record. It had some of the most uh, mature music they'd ever put out. But when my buddy and I were talking over that pint, all he could hear was this. Yeah,
2: that
3: was One Direction's first hit back in uh, 2011. Old labels die hard. But here's the thing. Harry Styles was 17 when that song came out. At 17, Bruce Springsteen was still seven years away from Born to Run. Billy Joel was eight years away from Piano Man. Elton John didn't put out his first record until he was 22. Prince was 20 when his first album came out. David Bowie was also 20. Tom Petty, 26. Here's my point. You can't really judge an artist by what they did at 17. Because most of the time, when they're 17, they're unsigned, and they're singing at talent shows. But old labels die hard. Of course, I'm realizing that I haven't even played this new single that I'm talking about yet. Something tells me you've heard it already. If not, here's a taste. what's going on there slightly apocalyptic huh it's a commentary on current events is that it is it a metaphor for uh, uh the end of a relationship there's a lot to unpack let it again
2: just so- Away from
3: here. Here's what I can say. First of all, it, it 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 totally ignores like contemporary music trends, or at least a few of the main ones. For instance, there's no EDM that's weaved in. There's no sped up or slowed down vocal. There's no like buzzy little sax line. There's no featured artist. This has got layers. It builds. It clocks in just 20 seconds shy of six minutes. By far the longest song on radio right now. I checked. Lady Gaga's new song is only three and a half minutes. Flowrider's new song called Cake, aside from being like the dopiest freaking recording of the year, only clocks in at two and a half minutes. So... Maybe credit Styles with believing, and trusting, his audience's attention span. There could be a radio edit coming, of course. <laughs> but but I do, I do think it's cool that somebody with pop sensibilities is embracing rock music, and it's not like uh, Bruno Mars, which is like a blatant ripoff. Uh, so far, it seems like this young man Styles truly, truly gets it. You know, identifies. With music of the '70s and, and '80s, and it's not an ego trip or a a, a you know a style thing. Uh, he identifies with it, but still has a sound rooted in 2017. What I'm trying to say is that his his sound doesn't seem calculated. It doesn't seem calculated. I've got a a Bob Dylan concert album, and in it, he tells the audience that. You seldom hear any real songs anymore. Seldom hear any real songs. That was back in uh, 1986. It was true then, and it's still true now. Um, and that's not like an elitist thing to say. It's not an elitist attitude. It's not a cynical ad- attitude. Um, it's just because that music is so heavily commercialized that the the real stuff gets lost. But from what I've heard, Styles might just be putting out the real stuff and we should be happy about that You know who else is putting out real stuff? Kendrick Lamar this' has been a good month for music for real um his new album is called Damn Great title and nobody in hip hop is more complicated than Kendrick Lamar. Nobody is more complex. His rhymes are complicated because he is complicated, and that can work in his favor like like let me give you a friend like I could listen to um to pimp a butterfly twenty years from now and hear different things, his music is literally taking years to uh, properly uh, put in its place. Or, or maybe it's that his songs grow with the times. Maybe that's a better way to put it. It's like it's like they're born out of a, a certain time, but they're also t- like timeless enough to mature along with the era they were born out of. At first, Damn may not sound as ambitious as To Pimp a Butterfly. The beats are a little more straightforward, for example. But Kendrick has like a, just, just this hammering rhyming style. Like he ain't Drake, right? He doesn't float through his songs. He pounds away at like uh, precisely written words. And this time around, he wants us to think about contradictions. He wants us to think about ours because it's apparent that he's spending a lot of time thinking about his. The album deserves to be listened to in full, but for right now, I want to talk about a song called Humble.
2: My left stroke just went viral. Right stroke put little baby in a spiral. Soprano C, we like the I know It's levels to you and I know down
3: Now this song is a turning point, and I'll tell you why. For as much success as Kendrick Lamar has had, and for as much ground as he's broken, he himself hasn't had a ton of luck. With singles, Uh, swimming pools, uh, I think that got up to like, I looked it up, number 17 on the Hot 100, Poetic Justice peaked at 26, Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe, 32, King Kunta, which is my favorite of all of his singles, peaked at 58, All Right at number 81. Well, Humble is a number one song. Number
2: one.
3: And if you want to be a cultural beacon, sooner or later it comes back to commercial performance. Because that's the simplest way to measure how you impacted the masses. What kind of effect did you have on the American public at large? Tupac had his number one. It was this song. More than that, he had eight songs in the top 40. Biggie had two number one songs. Here's one of them
2: to see sometimes it
3: was just hit and here's his other number 1
2: BIG POPPA no info for the DEA federal agents mad cuz I played with tap myself and the phone in the basement
3: now these are songs as a lead artist by the way i'm not counting guest spots Jay-Z had his number 1 interestingly it didn't come until 2009 and it was this song. Now
2: you're in new York. That's, right. That's right. These streets make you feel and yes. oh, yeah, yeah, I made the have a
3: yeah, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. What about Big Pempen? Well, it didn't get any higher than 18. Hard Knock Life. 15, can I get a 19, 99 problems, 30, dirt off your shoulder, came close, peaked at five. I ain't lying to you, friends. <laughs> but my, my point is this, sooner or later, you have to put out something that affects the masses. You need that number one. And now Kendrick Lamar has his with Humble. It's another step toward uh, world domination. And frankly, that would be fine with me. All right, here are five songs that we are adding to our Stream Police playlist. As you know, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. It can be streamed on Spotify. These songs are now added to the group. First, it's Love and Mercy by Brian Wilson. Bye. I'm No Angel by Greg Ullman. To throw uh Elton John's blue eyes at you.
2: Blue eyes babies got blue eyes like a deer.
3: By Benjamin Booker.
2: Right now we could use a little bigger me up. Seem like the whole damn nation's trying to take us down. When your brother's dying, mother's crying, TV's line. All the reasons in the world to me shit to me now. See we thought that we saw that he had a gun. Thought that it looked like he started to run. Thought that we saw that he had a
3: how I feel about horn sections. Love them. It is St. Valentine's Day <laughs> by Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. brass baby all day long thanks so much guys we're going to toss it back to clint talk to you in a bit all right behave yourselves see you
1: thank you very much andy much appreciated as always always good to talk to him always good to hear from him you can read more of Andy's reviews at OverdueReview.com. He uh, writes about records up there for us. His most recent one was a Demi Lovato review. He checked out Confident, and let's just say he didn't love it too much. Which I was shocked, man. I thought he was really going to dig that record. Speaking of overduereview.com, I just recently did a video review. I haven't done many of those. In fact, I've only done one other one in the history of the site. But I'm gonna—I'm I'm got like this ambitious idea. I'm gonna go back. I've always loved the James Bond movies. I've always owned them and watched them, you know, over and over. I'm, I'm rewatching every James Bond movie, and I'm gonna do a video review of every one of them. And i am i am gonna try to. It'll probably be like four or five years from now before I'm actually done with this project. But uh, I posted the first one up, and I didn't start with Dr. No. I wanted to kind of start in the middle. So I started with Roger Moore's For Your Eyes Only, which uh, uh, is—I have a video review of it up at OverduReview.com. You can watch kind of my exhaustive breakdown of that film. And I'm going to be doing it, like I said, with all the James Bond movies. The next one's Octopussy— And I'm already working on that video right now. Speaking of James Bond, can you believe 20 years ago, May 2nd, 1997, was the date that one of the all-time 1990s cultural icons made his debut on big screens worldwide. I'm talking about Austin Powers, the international man of mystery. It has been 20 years on May 2nd from the first Austin Powers movie hitting theaters. I could not believe that. Talk about feeling old. Um, I mean, I remember, like it was yesterday, My having my VHS copy, having my DVD copy of Austin Powers, and... Going to see the other two in theaters. I don't think I didn't see the first one in theaters. I was a little young, but I went and saw the other two in theaters. I specifically remember it. Those were like event movies. You had to go out and see them. I dressed as Austin Powers one time for Halloween. Uh, it's like, who didn't in the 90s or the early 2000s? Uh, you couldn't really go anywhere without hearing Austin Powers references. It, it just took over. Uh, The culture, and it was a really funny movie. The first one especially was so funny in the way that it told this like fish out of water story. I mean, how many times have you seen the Fish Out of Water story? Austin Powers is one of the classic examples of it. The idea of the film, if you haven't seen it, the whole idea of the the story is this this like James Bond-like spy, British spy, in the 1960s cryogenically freezes himself because his arch nemesis named Doctor Evil also cryogenically freezes himself. And he asked that he be thawed out when Dr. Evil's thought out. So they're thought out in the 1990s, 1997, after being frozen for 30 years. And Austin Powers is like this total dinosaur, um, you know, who, who ha- hangs on to all the, these ideas from the 1960s. But they've disappeared in the 30 years since he's been gone, and he didn't realize it. But the idea of this guy that gets frozen in the swinging 60s when you got free love and revolution in the air— but then he gets woken up in the late 90s when what dominates the culture is like cynicism, sarcasm, sexually transmitted diseases, corporate interests. It's a really funny idea. It was a great idea uh, from Mike Myers to come up with. This guy's a total dinosaur, though, is what makes the first one especially so funny. It's like a commentary on this being, you know, out of place. And Austin Powers wasn't really like, like he wants to be a hero in the first movie, but he's like more of an outcast than a big hero. Like no one accepts him because he is like this anachronistic weirdo. Uh, he saves the day, of course, but he has to, you know, learn some things and adapt to the culture a little bit as he goes along.
0: Oh. Well, um, I went to Oxford, where I excelled in several subjects, but I ended up specializing in foreign languages. You know, I really wanted to travel. You know, sort of see the world. That's
2: fascinating, Vanessa. Listen, why don't we go in the back and shag? What? I've been frozen for 30 years. I've got to see if my bits and pieces are still working. Excuse me. My wedding tackle. I'm sorry. I'm my meat and two vids, my twig and berries.
0: Hello, lads. Oh, Mr. Powers, Hello. Mr. Powers,
2: please.
0: I'd appreciate it if you could concentrate on our mission and give your libido a rest.
1: Austin Powers was great because it wasn't just this parody of spy movies. It was a parody of the entire idea that we all carry of 1960s culture. I mean, it's just like the stereotypes of 60s culture he embodies them And whether or not those stereotypes are accurate doesn't matter that's what we believe and that's what makes this movie so funny i feel like because it's like we almost have a collective memory of the 60s even though most of us were not there i certainly wasn't there i mean i wasn't born 20 years you know a- after the decade it ended i was i was born almost 30 years after the decade it ended no 20 years i'm sorry i wasn't a math major after the decade ended and but i have this like cultural memory of the 1960s like i can picture it because i've seen so many movies we've been obsessed with the 60s and that's one of the things that made austin Powers so great is that it kind of lampooned our entire idea of the 60s and just how ridiculous it would be if today we acted the way that people acted then um it just you wouldn't fit in at all so that to me that was like the true genius of this movie and it also had a lot to say about sexism it even had a little bit to say about the economy and probably my favorite joke from the entire movie
2: here's the plan We get the warhead, and we hold the world ransom for... One million dollars.
0: Well, don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? A million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. VirtuCon alone makes over nine billion dollars a year. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a lot.
2: Okay, then. We hold the world ransom for $100 billion. I've
1: got a great story about Austin Powers also. This was one of those movies that um, my wife, her sister-in-law, or my sister-in-law, I should say, my wife's sister, is a teenager. And we wanted to watch Austin Powers with her because she said she had never seen it. And she likes comedies and You know, I I just really thought, like, she likes silly stuff, too, and I thought that she would really like it because I'm like, oh, my God, you haven't seen Austin Powers, and Beth felt the same way. She's like, holy shit, we have to watch it. And I had all the movies, so it was like, let's let's just watch it, and, you know, we'll introduce her to this great, really funny movie from back in our day. So we sit down to watch it with her. I think she was, like, probably 16 when this happened. We were living uh, there with her, and I, I, like I said, I think she was 15 or 16 when we watched Austin Powers. We watched it with her. I swear to God. Hour and a half goes by. Beth and I are dying laughing at every joke. We're repeating all the lines. Tori didn't laugh one time at this... Like, she didn't laugh once in the entire movie. It was so, like, clear that she thought it was so stupid. And after it was over, she just... I think she was, like, being polite, but just she didn't like it at all. And we were, like, so disappointed. It's like, how can you not think this movie's genius? It's hilarious. Um, And realized just how 90s this movie is. I guess the humor just didn't translate. I don't know, because... It's a movie not about the 90s. I guess it is a little bit about the 90s, but it's, like, about the 60s. It's about James Bond and stuff. So, I don't know. It was really funny, though. It was telling to me that, like, a kid today just did not think it was funny in the least bit. So, I don't know. Have you had that that situation with any movies? I definitely had it with, uh, with Austin Powers with my teenage sister-in-law. Uh, and one more thing about Austin Powers. It scored terribly with test audiences when they first ran it. For test audiences in 1997, it ended up grossing about $70 million on top of a $16 million budget, which is good. Not great by today's standards. It's good, though. The sequel, though, came out and grossed $312 million, and the third film grossed $296 million. So you're talking about half a billion dollars in revenue from Austin Powers' movies over the years. All three of them were hits. All three of them are considered hits, and all three of them, they weren't critically acclaimed, but none of them were like panned completely um, just on face value. So they've been talking for years about doing a fourth one. Mike Myers has said many times that he's totally willing to do a fourth one, but they need to have a good story, and you know who knows if that's ever going to happen. But I'd definitely go see it if they did a fourth uh, Austin Powers, I'd be there for sure. Uh, I'd love to see the character come back. I thought he was, I mean, it was it's one of my favorite characters in, in movie history. It was just such a brilliant lampoon of James Bond, the spy movies, the free love of the 60s, all that stuff we think about stereotypically with the 1960s just summed up beautifully in one character. Uh, some of the stars that appeared in the Austin Powers movies over the years, you had guys like Will Ferrell, Tom Cruise, Michael Caine, Beyonce, Rob Lowe, Heather Graham, Robert Wagner. All these people are in. Austin Powers movies. So these were big-time movies. Can you believe it? 20 years since the first one hit theaters. Amazing. If that doesn't make you feel old, I don't know what will. All right, one more TV show I wanted to touch on before I'm done with you here today. Uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which right now is airing on Hulu. I said before I wanted to talk about the most ambitious show that Hulu has tried, um, and I feel like this is it, honestly. uh, it, It really looks uh, like a show that you know could have been produced, obviously, on Netflix. Um, it looks like a, a big-budget show. It's got big-time actors in it. Um, we have people like uh, Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men in the lead role. We've got, um, I can't remember her name, but the uh, actor who plays Poussey in Orange is a New Black, who was like m- one of my favorite actors on that show, which has a lot of great actors on it as well. Um, Yvonne Stradahovsky from Chuck and from Dexter is in this show as well. Uh, Joseph Fine from Shakespeare in Love is in this show. And the first three episodes right now are on Hulu. As I'm talking to you, they're releasing new episodes every Wednesday of this show. It's an adaptation of the 1980s dystopian book by uh, Margaret Atwood. And Atwood worked as a consulting producer on the show. She slapped her name on it. So she's giving it the stamp of approval. I was surprised that the show was created by a man. I was kind of disappointed in that. But it was nonetheless because this is really one of the great uh, feminist um, books and stories that's ever been told. It's my wife's favorite book. I mean, she she absolutely loves this book. She's got a quote from it tattooed uh, down her spine on her back. Um, and it's so it's one that means a lot to her, and I was really looking forward to watching it with her because I never read the book, and I only knew the story from her talking about it, but it sounds like a great story. Basically what it is is it's the, the world, it's set in America in like the not-so-distant future, um, in a world that is dominated by uh, people who like base their lives on the Bible and it's a patriarchal society that, uh, you know, uses religion to kind of control everybody. And especially women, women have no rights of any kind. They belong to men. They cannot have jobs. They cannot have their own money. They cannot own land. Um, and there are women who exist as wives to the men. And there are women who exist, uh, as handmaids who are basically just sex objects that, uh, are used to make children because uh, the, the fertility rate has, like, gone into the toilet because of pollution and, you know, all kinds of other things. So the story is about Elizabeth Moss, this character uh, named Offred, who is a handmaid and she exists, like I said, only to give birth to children produced by the guy that owns her, um, whose name is Fred, and that's why her name is Offred of Fredge. They, they took her real name and gave her this name so it's uh and Alexis Bledel's in it as well I almost forgot to say from uh, Gilmore Girls so it's it's really uh it, it's a dark it's so dark I mean I'm, I'm telling you I talked last month about the grimmest movies you've ever seen and I talked about The Mist and I said it's the grimmest movie I've ever seen forget about The Mist all right the first three episodes of this show are so dark it's so helpless the feeling you get watching this show and it's it's scary man i mean it's it's a scary idea because you could see this happening. There are people that would love for this kind of thing to happen, and they're not going to like openly say that, but they would love for this to happen. I mean people who would base their entire lives on the Bible who wish who think that America was founded because of people who you know who read the Bible and the bible's uh, the Ten Commandments are the basis for all people who believe this shit who think that that's that's the truth, one nation under God and all that i mean that this would be like the ultimate. Zenith of that idea you know coming to fruition, just uh you know religion dominating everything and being the be all end all there's no evidence presented in trials, they read bible scriptures and then they you know put you to death based on what you've done based on you know being gay or whatever they put you to death immediately because it says in the Bible right here they read a passage so it's a scary i mean it's scary man, and like I said it's kind of believable there are countries that exist like this right now in the world um so it's a grim show. It's uh it's hard to watch. Uh it's not the feel-good show of the summer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh but it's probably a necessary story and I think the the biggest thing to draw from it is how easily the transition happened and how the language was just subtly changed by the new leaders to kind of make people buy in. Uh so you want to believe like this could never happen, but the movie does a good, the show does a good job of going back and showing you how it did happen. Very slowly, subtly, and everybody kind of just went along and now it's about survival, so they're just fine with it. they're going along um, there there's a lot of like Holocaust references in this as well um, and it's it's just it's a stark show, but I think that so far this has been really good i'm I, I'm glad that Hulu did this, and I'm glad that you know for once some big time prestige show that's streaming did not end up on you know Amazon or Netflix. It's cool seeing somebody else. Have something big because I feel like Hulu's kind of been around for a while and they were groundbreakers in their own way of showing current shows, but they've kind of been behind the ball on the original programs. And now this is really a prestige one that they could they could legitimately win some Emmys with this, which is like a, a hump that they have not gotten over yet. So Handmaid's Tale right now is airing on Hulu. It's uh, first three se- episodes are out and new episodes are, are coming out every Wednesday, and I believe it is just going to be a one season like series thing. At least that's what I would assume, since it's based, of course, on a novel and not a series of novels or anything like that.
2: And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And she said, Behold, my maid.
1: Let me uh, wrap up by giving you, speaking of what's streaming right now, a couple things, uh, a couple movies, one streaming each on Netflix and Amazon that you may not have seen yet. That I highly urge you to go and check out first off on Netflix, one of the funniest movies I have ever seen. Tropic Thunder from two thousand and eight. Talk about a parody movie that just nails everything nails war movies it nails Hollywood in general uh it, it nails the military it nails uh you know conventions of acting and entertainment it 's just a really really funny send-up of uh, the movie business, and it's got one of the best casts that you'll ever see in a comedy. I'm telling you, Ben Stiller, Tom Cruise, Matthew McConaughey, Robert Downey Jr., who got nominated for an Oscar for his work in this movie, Jack Black. It's just, it's such a funny movie, and uh, it's, it it really kind of pokes fun in the the fake, how fake Hollywood really is, and it's cool to see these actors letting loose and just telling a great story. I love this movie. I love Tropic Thunder. I could watch it. You know once a week and i'd still think it's hilarious god
2: damn it we lost we fucking super lost man
0: tell them McCluskey! tell them what time it is i
1: don't believe you people huh?
0: what do you mean you people
2: what do you mean you people huh i i think what uh tug means is you people, No, look you at his actors, ass you exactly. Blue Blue man you people gotta get back the
3: Chill, all right? Just
1: chill it. Speaking of another movie that's hilarious but can also teach you some lessons, on Amazon right now uh, is Trading Places from 1983. That's the one with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And uh, Aykroyd plays like the executive at uh, the banking executive some Uh, investment firm in new york and eddie murphy plays this crazy homeless guy and these two rich guys who run the investment firm make a one dollar bet with each other that they can turn uh in just a short period of time they can turn eddie murphy into an executive and they can turn uh dan ackroyd into a homeless crazy person uh and they proceed to kind of toy with these guys lives and make that happen it's a really funny movie it's a good movie about sociology uh, I think sociology classes still show this film and kind of talk about it, but it's just really funny if you take it uh, as just a straight comedy, and it's some of the best work Eddie Murphy ever did, and that John Landis ever did as well, one of the last great movies that he directed. So uh, check that one out right now on Amazon. If you never saw Trading Places, give it a watch. It's it's a really it's a good one.
0: It's a whirlpool bath, sir. I think you'll enjoy it.
2: Bubble, man. Say, man, when I was growing up, we wanted
1: jacuzzi. We had to fart in the tub. This is bad. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, my dear friend. Uh, please give us a five-star review over there at iTunes, and pass it along to your friends as well. Tell them about it. We um, would love to keep kind of extending it, keep growing it. And, uh, you know, we, we do it once a month for you and try to make it like a, a good little – entertainment magazine for you of things you should be watching listening to right now uh, that are available for you online uh, so i'm clint davis movies and tv editor at overdue review.com thank you very much to andy sedlak our music editor as well and thank you very much to you for checking us out i'll talk to you next time until then stream on